Thank you, everybody, for joining us here live from the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And during this time of unrest in our nation and around the world, we turn to the only answer, the penicillin, the medicine for healing all of our ills, and this is Most Holy Communion. The Holy Eucharist, the source and summit of our faith. This is what we are going to talk about today in a way that I think you maybe not heard before. We hear all the time about the importance of the Eucharist, but we really sometimes don't understand why. That is what we are going to talk about tonight or today, I guess. So please stay with us because there is nothing the world needs more today than God's divine mercy. This is what John Paul II told us. And there is no greater manifestation of that mercy of God than the most holy Eucharist. So let us begin. As you saw the title slide there, this will be our topic for today, the Most Holy Eucharist. And why do I keep emphasizing that it's the answer? Because we all know what's going on right now in the world. Um, there is unrest, there is violence, there is peaceful protesting. And I gave the homily today at the nine o'clock mass, which you can find on YouTube or Facebook. And I emphasize the point that Yes, the peaceful protests are what our nation is all about, but the violence um, does not make sense. If we want to end violence, we don't use violence. Um, the efforts now to defund the police would cause nothing but anarchy in our societies. Yes, we have to find ways to bring more harmony, but at the same time, we have to find a way to also bring reason and logic. And that is what our Lord does to us. He does for us. And one of the greatest ways of manifestation of this, as I said, is the Most Holy Eucharist. Let us start with a slide, as you can see, of St. Faustina. St. Faustina is one that I always put up when I give these talks because Jesus told her that God's mercy, and I said this last couple weeks ago, primarily flows in three areas. Meditation on scripture, from confession or reconciliation, which is love greater than sin. And the third way of which God's mercy flows is the Eucharist, which is love greater than death. The next slide, you can see our topic today, Holy Communion. Very important. You've heard it a hundred times, but do we really understand why it is so needed in this broken world. You've heard me say before that, you know, our bodies need a bath, but so do our souls. That's confession. And our bodies need food, so do our souls. That's Holy Communion, true soul food. Now in the next slide, we see the passage of John 6, verse 53 for 58. You can see kind of on the margins there, if you look close enough on the slide. Basically, our Lord says, Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And what's so important about this is what our Lord is giving to us through these words. And people say, well, Father, that's just symbolic. No, it's not symbolic. John 6, one of my most favorite passages in the whole Bible, listen to what our Lord says. Our Lord says, this is the bread. I'm starting at verse 50. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, did our Lord stop there? Was he only talking symbolic? No. He was talking true truth. And the reason we know this is he keeps going. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Does Jesus stop there? Is this only symbolic? No, he keeps going. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. That is incredible. That is the message of John 6. That is the message of the Eucharistic discourse. And it's not symbolic. It is truth. You know, if our Lord was speaking symbolically, or if this was just an expression, we would have to look at the words Jesus really spoke. In the Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke, if he said, eat the flesh and drink the blood of someone, in Aramaic, that expression meant to persecute or assault someone. Now, this is not the way to gain eternal life. There's no way Jesus would be saying, assault someone, and then you'll earn eternal life. No. It's literally true. 1 Corinthians 11.27 tells us, to receive unworthily brings condemnation. That means it's not symbolic. If it was just a piece of bread, if you ever saw me eat a piece of pizza, you would see eating bread irreverently. I'm usually wolfing it down as I'm running off to my next meeting or cramming it down, the, uh, down into my mouth as I'm racing off for another, for another uh, event or meeting. So that's because it's just bread. There's no way eating that irreverently would cause condemnation on me. The only reason it would cause condemnation, as Paul says, is if it's more than bread. If Jesus was speaking symbolically, the disciples would not have walked away in John 6. <clears throat> so the word in the Greek, which the Gospels were written, the word used is tragon, which means to literally to chew, to gnaw with your teeth. This means literally eat. So look at the next slide. Here we see Holy Communion. And this, I took a picture of St. Faustina above the altar there in Lithuania when I was saying Mass, because she's a great one to turn to to understand the importance of Holy Communion. Faustina refers to the Eucharist throughout her diary. She wrote 16 different prayers in preparation for Holy Communion. And in the one passage I love in the diary, paragraph 1804, she said, 
that Jesus told her, if the angels were capable of envy, they would only envy man for two things. One, that they can suffer. That's crazy, right? Because we imitate Jesus when we suffer on the cross. And two, that we can receive Holy Communion. Isn't that crazy? The one thing suffering, no Catholic wants anything to do with, even though it's redemptive. And two, the Holy Eucharist, which only 30% of Catholics believe in the true presence, are the two things the angels most envy us for. Isn't that unbelievable? All right. So the next slide that we have here is a picture of a great connection between the Mass, the Eucharist, and Christ's sacrifice. The Mass is just not a bunch of words and standing and sitting and kneeling. It's so much more. People say all the time, now look at that slide. Look at the deepness. See Christ on the cross there? People say all the time, why do you crazy Catholics keep re-crucifying Christ? He's not on that cross anymore. He is risen. Actually, because God is outside a time when you come to Mass, Pope Benedict tells us, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Pope Benedict tells us in spirit of the liturgy that when we come to Mass, the roof of the church opens up and the angels and the saints ascend and descend and heaven and earth are united right here at the Mass. It's the most profound time when heaven and earth are united and, and the angels and the saints ascend and descend. And how powerful is this moment? Now, we are not re-crucifying Christ, although you see a picture of him on the crucifix at every mass. We are actually at Calvary as Christ is paying that debt for sin. You've heard me say it over and over. Why did Christ die on the cross? Father, to forgive our sins, yes, but he could have forgiven our sins from heaven. Father, to open the doors to heaven, yes, but he could have opened the doors from heaven, from within heaven. He didn't need to come and die on a cross, but in a way he did. Because the penalty for sin is death. And when Jesus paid that debt for our sin, which was death, and then overcame it, we were given life. And when you come to the mass, you are at the foot of Calvary as Jesus is paying that penalty for your punishment and my punishment. This is powerful. This is powerful. He's paying our debt and we are there at Calvary. The Mass, that's why the Mass is the only perfect form of prayer. People say, well, Father, I go to my room and I pray. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says to start. We do need personal prayer. But the problem is our personal prayer is imperfect. When you pray or our pray, I pray, that's good. But when we pray in private, some of the graces trying to come through to our soul is blocked by our sins. All right. You probably can't see it, but right now we have stained glass windows here at the shrine and the sun is trying to come through. Now, some of the light of the sun is getting through the window. That's like the grace of God. But because the stained glass is there in a good way, it's like our souls, it's a good thing. But that stained glass window blocks some of the light of God's sun coming in, S-U-N. Because some of that light is blocked some gets through some does not it's the same with God's grace trying to get into our soul 
God's grace is coming down to enter into our soul, but because of our personal sins, we block some of that. If you're in mortal sin, you've blocked all God's grace. That's why you need to get to confession to lift those blocks. Now, in Mass, the prayer becomes perfect. Why? Because in the Mass, it is not just your prayer like it is in your bedroom. In the Mass, your prayer is united with all the people at the Mass, but even more. It's united with all of heaven and all of earth. All of creation is present at the Mass. Now, all of a sudden, you have the power, as the gospel tells us, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their presence. Try the whole world of creation gathered together and see how God is, is there in your presence. And then the Mass, which many people don't realize, but the prayer of the Mass is a prayer to the Father by the sacrifice of the Son. The prayer, as I was taught a long time ago, of the Mass is God offering God to God. And this is an incredible and powerful way to realize it's perfect. Because no prayer of Jesus is imperfect. He has no sin blocking it. His prayer is perfect. And when you come to Mass, you unite in that perfect prayer. You've heard me say it before on my DVD series, which Brother Mark will show at the end of the talk today. There will be a slide that will show my DVD with 13 new talks called Explaining the Faith. And you can get that on shopmercy.org. I go through all of this in detail. That's why I invite you to get that DVD because right now I can't cover all of this, but this is just a kind of a preliminary talk to give you an example of what is available on those talks on the DVD to get you to see the value of the mass explaining the faith. The new DVD series covers how God in his infinite wisdom and his three great acts of mercy gives us everything I've said before that the power of the mass is, is in the three great acts of God's mercy. The first great act of mercy is creation. So all comes from God and who we normally attribute creation to is the first person of the Trinity, the Father. So the first great act of mercy is creation and all of creation is present at the mass. Then we got broken. God created us, but it didn't take us long in the garden to get broken. Then in the second great act of mercy, the second person of the Trinity came down and redeemed us. God, the son, second great act of mercy by the second person of the Trinity, redemption. Now in the third and the final and the greatest act of mercy, guess who? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in the third great act of mercy, sanctification or divinization is going to return us back to God, the father from which we came to be able to spend all eternity. Where does that happen? Father, every day, every minute, somewhere around the world, the mass. This is what's going on. It's the sacrifice of the son back to God, the father. So what happened? We all came from God, the father, exitus, reditus. We will return to the father, but we all came from God, the father. We were created. We got broken. Then the second act of mercy, God, the son came down and repaired us. He's the ultimate repair man redemption. Then in the third and final great act of mercy, the Holy Spirit is going to take us back 
to God the Father, now repaired, united with Christ in our human nature. Our broken human nature is now fixed, repaired, and redeemed. And now it's reunited with Christ. And now it's going to be taken back through the power of the Holy Spirit to God the Father for all eternity. This is the Mass. And this is why people say, what is the Mass, Father? The Mass is God offering God to God. Therefore, it is perfect. It is God the Son offering himself to God the Father by the power of God the Holy Spirit. So you have God the Son offering to God the Father an atonement for our sins and the sins of the whole world, his death to pay our sin debt and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is brought back to him redeemed. That's why when the priest at the moment of the mass raises the chalice and the paten and he says, through him and with him and in him, O God Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. That's exitus reditus. We're all coming from God. We're now returning to God. Don't miss that boat. That returning to God happens in the Mass by the power of the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of the Son offered to God the Father. That is why all the Mass prayers are dedicated to the Father. They are directed to God the Father. And you can hear all that in Father Mike Gately's new book called 33 Days to Greater Glory. Now, the priest... He is in the place of Jesus at that mass. He is in persona Christi at this mass. He is. Now, this is why people say, Father, the church is sexist because it doesn't ordain women. No, I've said before that actually a cloistered nun is a higher vocational calling, a higher way of life than a diocesan priest. Not higher in grace in the sense that the priest can still do the sacraments, which a cloistered nun cannot. But in the sense that a cloistered nun has a way of life like Mary. Mary's chosen the better half. And Martha, who's the apostolic, like a diocesan priest still does great glory to God. But the highest level is a cloistered nun. And, and so the church isn't sexist. It's just the role is different. And that priest, when he's at that altar and lifts up that patent, is in the person of Christ. Jesus came as a man. We can't change that. We had no determination in that. God chose to be incarnate. It's not sexist against ladies. God bless all you ladies. You're the reason the church is going right now. So... Please understand the church isn't, it's not chauvinistic. The church is just saying there are roles that are different. Some even roles of women are higher. So it's not about sexism. It's about being in that person of Christ. And that's who that priest is at that moment. Now, we, as you've heard me say before, are the bride. We are the bride coming up this aisle to be received by the groom in Holy Communion. The church has said all along that in the, in the wedding feast of the Lamb, and this, this is so powerful, in the wedding feast, who's the groom? Jesus. Who's the bride? The church. Who's the church? We are. So when you come up this aisle, you are making your wedding march. You are the bride. And who's here waiting for you at the altar? Your groom. And in the wedding, like the Catholic wedding, where the two come one at the altar, the groom meets her bride. And that night it's consummated and the groom enters into the bride. The same happens at this altar. You, the bride, come forward. You're the church. And there is your groom, Jesus, in the host, and he enters literally into our bodies through Holy Communion. It's 
consummated. This is so powerful. This is what's happening. And every moment at the consecration of the mass, the mystics tell us your angel, guardian angels come forward and they kneel around the altar and, and at the moment of consecration. And so they, they tell us, these mystics tell us that the guardian angels of your guardian angel is holding a vessel. And in that vessel, what's in there? Everything that you put into it. That's why it drives me crazy when people say, Father, I don't get anything out of Mass. You can't get anything more. It's eternal life. But do you give? What do you give? The Mass isn't about your entertainment. The Mass is about you giving worship to God. So when you come to Mass, put everything in that patent for your guardian angel and that little vessel that he takes up to the altar. Put in your hopes, your dreams, your joys, your sorrows, your pains, everything. And that's when the priest offers that patent back up to God the Father. Your guardian angels place everything you put into that vessel, into their hands, into that uniting with Christ to the Father. And is brought up to the throne of God and sanctified. If you're wondering why the Lord doesn't ask, answer my prayers, do you offer them like that in the Mass? If you haven't, we need to. God bless all of you. I'm so glad you're here with us today because I know I get passionate about this. I'm not trying to be condescending in any way. Like, you know, anybody, do you not get this? Or how come you don't get this? No, I didn't get it. I didn't get this till I was well into seminary. I'm just trying to share it. And this is my joy. This is what I'm a priest for. And so how powerful that these angels, you know, uh, y'all have, we all know how many guardian angels do you have? We always talk about this. You have one, right? Well, how many guardian angels do priests have? We have two. And the reason I always say is because we need them. Pray for your priests. We have big targets on our back. Priest once told me that after, the night before I was ordained that he said, you know, please, Father, be, you know, be diligent in your priesthood because after tomorrow when you're ordained, your wanted poster will be in the post office of hell. And I was like, gee, thank you, Father. It's not what I needed to hear, but he was speaking the truth. All right, now let's keep moving. The next slide is a Eucharistic miracle. You see what our Lord has given to us in the gift of the Eucharist? Look at that slide. Do you see the hosts? Do you see the blood on those hosts? This is a Eucharistic miracle. Now read the passage there on the sides. I'll give a moment for you to read the words there that basically people are always saying that, oh, these Eucharistic miracles, Father, they're just from the Middle Ages. Did you see that there? That was just a few years ago in Poland, confirmed by the bishop, and the Vatican, the Holy See. And keep reading those words on that slide because those words will tell you that they found it to be human heart tissue under stress. Human heart tissue? This is what happens in the testing of these Eucharistic hosts. You know, we had a um, great speaker here at the Marian Fathers a couple of years ago called uh, Dr. Castagnon. And he did a talk where he talked about the Eucharistic miracles. And he told a story that was very interesting. He said that he was at a conference that was organized by some doctors and he was giving a talk <clears throat> and he wanted to bring in the Eucharist. And there was all kinds of medical doctors there. And as he started talking about the Eucharist being living flesh, he started to get mocked. 
And he uh, noticed that some of the doctors were not believing what he was saying. So he uh, put up a slide and he basically said, if you give me this, and he showed a piece of bread, and he said, and this, and he showed a prayer from the missile, and you give me this, and he showed a picture of a priest. He said, I will give you Christ flesh and blood. And people are like, what? You know, you're talking crazy here. So anyway, he says, don't believe me. And he looked at some of the doctors in the crowd and he pointed at one and he says, well, I tell you what, I took this same bread that was prayed for over by this priest and we sent it to your lab, your lab and your lab. And he's pointing out specific doctors. And he said, and everyone confirmed that it was human heart tissue. This is a Eucharistic miracle. And so we have to realize that God gives us an example of these Eucharistic miracles. You know, the church fathers for 1,500 years only talked about Mary and the Eucharist. And there's been many miracles. And in fact, that, that the miracle that you saw on your screen a second ago is common, not uncommon. And they're all consistent. You know, the blood is the blood of the universal receiver, not the universal donor, the universal receiver, AB, I think it is uh, negative. But anyway, it is always tested as human heart tissue. And only the Y chromosome has been present in those miracles, meaning there's no earthly father. This defies all biology and science. So remember, our Lord leaves his body and blood in the form of a host so he can, quote, remain with us until the end of time. It says that in scripture and that he can be present to us. You know, the next slide is a picture of the book of Revelation. Take a look up at your screen. In the book of Revelation, we always hear from, God bless our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, that it's about the rapture or the Antichrist. Actually, the book of Revelation is not about that. What is the book of Revelation about? Well, I'd like to tell a quick story. When I was down in North Carolina, I started a business and I opened our doors one month before 9-11. Can you imagine? And you all remember what happened to the economy after 9-11, right? Down it went. I was hanging on by a shoestring, poured my whole life savings into this business, teetering on bankruptcy before we really even opened our doors. And all of a sudden, there's a man in Charlotte who's interested in my services. And, but he said, Chris, I want to get to know you better. And in my process of conversation, it was revealed that he's a strong Christian. God bless him. Seemed like a good man. He said, Father, I'd like you to come down to my Pentecostal church Wednesday night. We'd like to get to know you. So I'm like, absolutely. My focus, <clears throat> unfortunately, at that time was not on God, but was getting on getting the contract. And I went down there and I walked in. And one of the things that really struck out at me was the appearance. There was no statues, no beautiful paintings, no wonderful stained glass, which is all allowed by uh, church teaching. It's not against graven images. You got to read you got to read the Bible. It says we don't worship 
graven images. We can have them to represent our Lord. We don't worship the statue or the paint or the image. We worship what it represents, right? But anyway, this church, if you could call it, was blank. It was bland. It was white walls, stonewashed. There was no altar. There was no statues. There was no real beauty. Now, all of a sudden, I walk in the door, and this pastor, Pastor Jim, comes in, and he says, welcome to our church. And he says, you know, we don't have all them their rituals here. Those are no good. And so I sit down, and it was interesting, because the businessman that had brought me as his guest said to everybody, hey, everybody. This is Father Chris. Or excuse me, I was not father at that time. This is Chris, and he's Catholic. And boom, everybody raced over to me, putting hands on me to pray over me, to release me from Catholicism. But God bless them. They meant well. I'm not at all, was not upset or critical. Their hearts are good. But I just found it interesting what happened next. That night, it was announced that we're going to be studying the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it's about the Antichrist and the rapture. Really? No, it's not. You see, the rapture is not biblical. The rapture was basically put together in the early 1800s from a vision of a girl, young girl in Scotland. And the Antichrist is never even mentioned once in the book of Revelation. It's not what the book of Revelation is about. Now, what's interesting is we started reading from the book of Revelation I'm listening, and I've been a Catholic all my life, and I had not yet heard the tape by Scott Hahn called The Lamb's Supper. But it's interesting because my experience sitting there in that church that night was almost identical to Scott Hahn's in The Lamb's Supper. He was in a Catholic church, and when he discovered it, I'm actually in a Protestant church. And at the time, they start reading the book of Revelation. And I was thinking there, what are they talking about? It doesn't seem to be the rapture of the Antichrist. They started talking about the priesthood. Chapter 20, verse 6. Celibacy of the priest, which is uniquely Catholic. Verse 14, 4. They talked about the high priests, robes and candles. Chapter 1, verse 13. It was funny because that pastor had just told me, we don't have, Father, you're Catholic, welcome to our church. We don't have all them, their rituals. Them are no good. We don't have this altar, although the Bible talks about the altar of sacrifice. He says, we don't have all those robes and candles, although we just read it in Revelation chapter 1, 13. And then he says, Father, we don't have that, that swingy thing that smoke comes up in, in, in who knows who's smoking that smoke. Really? Well, that censer, it tells us in the book of Revelation, where the incense rises up like prayers of the saints to the throne of God, is in the book of Revelation, chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. That same passage also talks about the altar. They had no altar. We have the altar of sacrifice. The book of Revelation then in chapter 2, verse 17, talked about the Eucharist, the bread from heaven, the manna. It talks about 
Holiness, holy, 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 right? There's your vain, repetitious prayer, right? No, it's not vain. It may be repetitious, but it's in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy. In the um, Hebrew, they don't have a superlative in their language. You can't say the holiest. To emphasize something, you say it multiple times. Holy, holy, holy. That's what our mass is full of. That's right out of Revelation, verse 4, chapter 8. What about the Alleluia? We sing it throughout Mass. That's in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, 1. The Gloria we sing here in the Mass. That is chapter 15, verse 3. Then we go on. The two parts of the book of Revelation is very interesting. It's just like our Catholic Mass. In the first part, we have the penitential rite. In the first part of the Mass, we are called to repent. That's exactly like the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the Lamb of God. It's mentioned 28 times. We, in our Eucharistic sacrifice, we talk about the Lamb of God. You take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God. You take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God. Takes away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. We recite, we recite multiple times, Lamb of God, just like the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation talks about altars and books and chalices. Where do you see that? Maybe a Catholic Mass? Talks about white robes, saints, and the sacrifice of the lamb to the father had to be eaten. Or the sacrifice was invalid. It's all there. All of it. Then, as I said, the revelation is bro broken into two parts, just like the mass. The first part of the book of Revelation is chapters 1 through 11. This is like the first part of the mass, like the liturgy of the word. Why? Because the high priest emerges at the altar, that's what a priest does in Mass, and then goes to the book to reveal its contents. That's what I did today when I came to Mass and opened up the scriptures to read the word, the gospel. This is important. Then the second half of Revelation, chapters 13 through 22, is like liturgy of the Eucharist. People are fed the manna. And listen to this. Wine is put into the chalices and turned into blood. Where have you seen that? That's not the rapture. That's not about the Antichrist. That's the Catholic Mass. This is powerful. The Mass is on every page, as Scott Hahn tells us. He says, if you miss Mass, the next best thing is to pray the rosary and the divine mercy chapter. And I'm sorry, that's not Scott Hahn. I'm saying Scott Hahn is the one who says the mass is on every page. I'm the one who says the next best thing if you miss mass is to pray the rosary. It's like liturgy of the word, a meditation on scripture. The rosary is not a bunch of Hail Marys. It's a meditation on scripture. And then pray the chaplet of divine mercy because it's actually a sacrifice like the priest offering sacrifice when you pray eternal father i offer you the body and blood you are making sacrifice well father i'm not a priest yes you are by virtue of your baptism you share in the three offices of christ priest prophet and king you are a prophet you teach you are a king you govern your body and family and holiness and you are a priest and the priest is the common priesthood, not ministerial. You're not going to be hearing confessions or saying mass. But in the common priesthood, you are to offer sacrifice. 
So when you pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet, you are offering sacrifice. That's like the second part of the Mass, Liturgy of the Eucharist. It's about sacrifice, and that's the second part of the Book of Revelation. It's all tied together. The Book of Revelation is about the Mass, and this is the gift we have from God. Christ is present here and now in heaven and on earth and through the Mass. Now, Scott Hahn did say, if we make it to Mass, we make it to heaven. All right, let's take a look at the next slide. This is a Catholic Mass. Here you see a picture of the Basilica in Washington, D.C. I used to go there to Mass when I was a seminarian. Amazing place. This is where Christ gives himself to us as the bride. As I said before, his bride is the church. We are the church. Therefore, we are his bride. And in marriage and holy communion, we are united. This is Revelation 19.9. As we said, when the groom enters into the bride, it brings life like it does in the family with a child. This is how the church father saw it. Not the rapture, not the antichrist. The mass has more scripture than any Protestant Sunday service period. We are biblical. <clears throat> and the mass is about it. Remember, John, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is the mass. The sacrificed lamb of the Old Testament Passover had to be eaten or the firstborn child died. We now have the real Paschal lamb, the real sacrifice lamb, Jesus Christ. And we too are to eat him just like Passover lamb. The sacrifice of the lamb at Passover and the sacrifice of the lamb of the mass are the same lamb of God. You take away the sins of the world. The church is in heaven and the kingdom is on earth. The mass links the two. This is powerful, heavenly glory. I'm going to go back to Scott Hahn again. When he did our retreat here, I made all kinds of notes, and this is what I'm borrowing from him. The heavenly glory is unveiled in the earthly liturgy. That is the meaning of the Greek word apocalypse. You ever hear that word apocalypse? Yeah, Father, that means the end of the world. That means the rapture. That means the Antichrist. No, it means the heavenly glory is unveiled in the earthly liturgy. That's the meaning of apocalypse. That's the meaning of the mass. That is everything. Wow. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Here you see a picture of the Trinity. This looks very familiar to Father Mike Gately's cover of his book, uh, The One Thing is Three. Now, we often think of only Jesus when we receive Holy Communion, do we not? And rightfully so, all right? But what about the rest of the Trinity? What about the Father and the Holy Spirit? Are they there present? Look at them united in that picture that, or that Brother Mark had up there. And I want to read you a quote from St. Faustina. This is from the Diary 451. Listen to this. Once after Holy Communion, I heard these words, You are our dwelling place. At that moment, I felt in my soul the presence of the Holy Trinity. Whoa, wait a minute, Father. You're telling me everything I ever learned that that Holy Eucharist was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ is not Jesus, just the whole Trinity? Well, hold on a minute. Yes and no. Communion is the divine activity of the love eternally taking place within the Trinity, not just Jesus. 
It's a love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember who the Trinity is. You have the Father, the Lover, the Son, the Beloved, and the love between them is so great, from it proceeds a third person, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is simply the love between the Father and the Son. That's why the family mirrors the Trinity. You have the husband, the lover, the wife, the beloved, and the love between them is so great, from it proceeds a third person, the child. Now, yes, only Christ is present sacramentally, body and blood, because the Holy Father, excuse me, God the Father did not become incarnate, so he has no body or blood. The Holy Spirit did not become incarnate, so he does not have a physical body with blood, Christ became incarnate, the second person. So yes, it is true, only Christ is present sacramentally, body and blood, but he is under the appearance of bread and wine. We get this. But the Father and the Holy Spirit are also present with Christ because of the perfect unity of the Trinity. Now, that's why we say in the Creed, consubstantial with the Father. The Holy Spirit, the Father and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial with Christ, meaning they share the same nature. So by what we call, sorry for the big word, circumcision, each of the three persons is present in each other while being distinct. So in Holy Communion, Yes, you actually receive the body and blood only of Christ because only he had body and blood. But the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit are present concomitantly. And people say, well, Father, where's the body? Where's the blood? All I see is bread and wine. Yes, if you put it under a microscope, the accidents, as they are called, not like a mistake, but accidents meaning what looks and feels and touches is bread and wine before consecration, and it actually has the makeup of bread and wine. But when the priest elevates it to be consecrated, that bread and wine change substance. It becomes the body and blood of Christ. That's why we call it trans, which means change, substantiation of substance. The substance went from being bread and wine to being body and blood, the flesh of Jesus. And how do we know this? He gave it to us in the upper room in the Last Supper and gave the priest the command to keep doing it for all time, not just till they died, but for all eternity. So when we receive Christ sacramentally through concompetence, the Father and the Son become present with Christ, not sacramentally, but truly substantial. This is why St. Therese said, she realized, listen to this, not only was the Trinity about to dwell in her when she received Holy Communion, but since the angels and saints in heaven are perfectly incorporated into Christ, all of heaven would come to dwell in her soul as well. Is that not amazing? So she said, quote, all of heaven entered into my soul when I received Holy Communion. Wow. This is incredible. This is why the extraordinary promise. Look at your next slide. Look at that there on the next slide. In the promise of Divine Mercy Sunday. The passage I picked up there is 699. Read through that passage and basically get to the part that where Jesus is on that day. Okay, and what day we're talking about? Divine Mercy Sunday. 
He's basically saying the soul that has been to confession, so it's in a state of grace, and receives holy communion will be wiped away, not just of all sins, like in the confessional, but of all punishment due to sin, which we don't get in the confessional, unless we have absolute perfect contrition, which is not easy. So, because Jesus loves us, he wants his bride to be spotless, that's us, when he comes on Divine Mercy Sunday, the eighth day, because eight represents eternity to the Jews, and Jesus is coming for us on that eighth day, because that's when we enter into eternity, but he wants us clean. So through confession in the Eucharist, what does he do? He cleans us. Notice the promise in that passage, 699 of the diary. The soul that goes to confession and receives Holy Communion will be completely cleansed of everything. You're going to be clean. That's why Divine Mercy Sunday emphasizes on the importance of the sacraments, confession and communion. The whole point of Divine Mercy Sunday isn't a magic wand or a rabbit's foot, it's to return us to the sacraments. All right, let's keep going. We're doing all right. Now, communion is a sacrament. Look at the next slide. You see Jesus there at the table in the upper room. He's instituting the sacraments. Remember what a sacrament is. Father, you know, our church is the same as any other um, you know, my, my family, we go to the non-denominational church down the road and we, we have Holy Communion. God bless you guys. You mean well, and I understand that, but it's not Holy Communion. It's symbolic bread and wine, or in many cases, grape juice. But we are not trying to discredit any other faith. It's just they, they admit they don't believe that. We're not trying to disagree with something they say they believe in. No other faith but our Catholic faith believes in transubstantiation. That the sacrament is what makes us different from every other of the 40,000 religions that are Christian. The sacraments make us different. The reason why is because the sacraments do something. And Christ instituted it there in the upper room. The sacrament is not just a symbol. It's actual grace. The actual grace of a sacrament is what makes the difference for all of us. It's real grace. When you receive a sacrament, you're not wondering, maybe I got this grace. You're guaranteed the grace. No, a sacrament, what is it? Remember your definition? A sacrament is an efficacious sign, meaning it does something. Efficacious, it does something. It's an efficacious sign of God's grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is instilled in us. If you don't know that definition, you need to meditate on it. Basically, what our Lord is telling us I'm giving you guaranteed grace for divine life. And it's through the sacrament. And Holy Communion is the source and summit of those sacraments. This is amazing. So back to my visit to that Pentecostal church. Are we about rituals? Yeah, actually we are. Because all of human history and the Bible itself is full of rituals. In the book of Revelation... The high priest, the robe, the altar, the scrolls, the chalices of wine turning into blood, the incense. It all, 
all of it is biblical. It's tradition, it's ritual, and that's what the Bible talks about. The sacrament, look at your next slide. The sacrament is in the Bible. You know, as humans, we are spiritual and we are physical. We're spiritual and we are corporal. We learn through our senses. When you were a child, you learned by touching, tasting, smelling, seeing, hearing. And it's the same when we come to Mass, we engage our senses. We stand, we sit, we kneel. That's not just, uh, it's engaging our whole being, not just our spirit in worship, but our body in worship. So the Bible has always had external ceremonies for spiritual things. This is what the mass is. These are the basis of our Catholic sacraments, external signs that guarantee an internal grace. This is powerful. The effect in our Catholic faith, I'm going to give you one big word, Latin here, ex opore operato, by the very fact that the sacrament is being administered, regardless of the holiness of the priest, means you get grace. It does something. Wow. This is amazing. So my last slide, you can see it on the screen there, the monstrance of the most holy sacrifice of the mass or the, I'm sorry, the, the blessed sacrament. You can see there, the sacraments separate us from all other religions. As I said, they are actual grace. I said before, our bodies need a bath. So do our souls. You can go on your own to tell God you're sorry for, for, and ask for forgiveness, and that's good. Or you can have it guaranteed in confession. Same with our bodies. They need food. So does our souls. The soul is filled with Holy Communion. It's true soul food. So you can either symbolically go to communion somewhere else, or you can receive Christ, true body, true blood, soul, and divinity in most Holy Communion. So, unlike most other weeks, I'm basically done. This is a short talk this week, so hopefully it'll be a little easier for you to give to somebody else to watch. But I would like to finish with a story of Bishop Fulton Sheen. And Bishop Fulton Sheen had always a way of bringing in the practical along with the theological. And there was a young boy, a story tells us, that came up to Bishop Fulton Sheen, and he had a little puppy. Now, I had a nine-week-old yellow lab when I lived in North Carolina, and I know how absolutely adorable those things are. Uh, my dog was named Rocky. as one of the hardest things I had to give up when coming to the priesthood. People are like, Father, was it hard to give up to your, your business? Yeah. Was it hard to give up your house? Yeah. Was it hard to give up your, your merit or your fiance? Absolutely. But was it hard to give up Rocky? Oh, man. <laughs> it was really hard. All of those were blessings of the Lord. Well, anyway... I know what a yellow little nine-month-old la yellow lab is like. They are adorable. And supposedly the story goes that there was a young boy 
um, named Timmy, and he had an, a dog, and Bishop Fulton Sheen saw him with the dog. And Bishop Fulton Sheen said, went up to this young boy, and he said, Timmy, I see you have a new dog. He said, yeah. He said, yeah, Father. And he gave the name of the dog, and uh, let's call him Rocky too, I guess. I have no idea what his name was. But the, uh, the uh, bishop said to young Timmy, he said, Timmy, do you love your dog? And Timmy said, oh, yeah, Father. I love my dog. He says, I run with him and play with him, and he's always there with me. And Fulton Sheen says to Timmy, he says, Timmy, how much do you love your dog? And Timmy said, oh, Father, I love my dog a whole lot. And Fulton Sheen said to him, well, how much do you love your dog, Timmy? He says, Father, I said. It's kind of like, remember Jesus with Peter, right? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. So Fulton Sheen says to Timmy, he says, I, um, how much do you love your dog? He says, a whole lot. He says, well, Timmy, he said, would you, do you love your dog so much that you would become a dog to teach your dog how to be a good dog? And little Timmy looked, he said, what do you mean, father? And he said, well, your dog is just a puppy. He needs to learn how to run and to fetch and to hunt and to bury a bone. He needs to learn how to do that. Would you be willing to become a dog to teach your dog to be a good dog? And Timothy thought about it for a minute and he says, yeah, I guess so. So then Bishop Fulton Sheen went one step further and he said, Timmy, how much do you love your dog? Again, I keep laughing with Jesus and Peter, right? And again, Timmy looked up and he said, Father, I told you I love my dog. He says, okay, Timmy, do you love your dog so much that you would become dog food to save your dog from starving, that he could eat you? And Timothy went, what? <laughs> and Bishop Fulton Sheen said, yeah, Timmy. Do you love your dog so much that you'd become dog food, that your dog, when starving to death, could eat you? And Timothy said, uh, I don't think so, Father. <laughs> And Bishop Fulton Sheen said, Timmy, that's how much Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you so much. Not only did he become a little boy like you to show us and you how to be a good little boy, but he also became food for us so that we could eat and live forever. You see to me, that's how much Jesus loves you. And Timothy thought about it. And Fulton, she said, you see to me, Jesus coming down to become one of us was a greater step down than you stepping down to become a dog. If you were to step down to become a dog, that'd be a less of a step down than it was for Jesus to step down to become 
Amen. And it, if you read the story, it sounds like Timmy got the point. The point is, that's what we have in the Eucharist. Eternal life. Eternal life given to us by God through the Most Holy Eucharist. So I'd like to finish today by one more time reading the pure Eucharistic discourse, the discourse of life. For this is the will of my Father. And, this is, and I'm going to go back again to John 6. I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who is the father and mother we know? Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come unless the father who sent them. And he goes on and he says, truly, truly, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give of the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Who who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He keeps going as the living father sent me and I live because of the Father. He who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not such that the fathers ate and died. And he who eats this bread will live forever. God bless you. And thank you for coming to join us on this most important source and summit of our faith, the Catholic Eucharist. Now, I wrap up by having Brother Mark show you on that screen. This talk was just a shortened version of my talk on that DVD series called Explaining the Faith. And you can go to receive that DVD on shopmercy.org. So if you go to shopmercy.org, I got other talks. I got 13 new talks on there, talks on Mary, talk on the Eucharist, talk on confession, talk on Holy Communion, talk on Divine Mercy Sunday, talk on St. Faustina, talk about suffering. That's really applicable now. Why would a good and loving God allow such suffering, right? Um, a talk on suicide. How could God's mercy be there when in the midst of a suicide? They're all there. Please get that DVD if you want to share your faith. It's called Explaining the Faith, and you can find it on shopmercy.org. If you want to stream it, on that same slide, if you look down a little bit lower, Brother Mark has on there the link. Just go to thedivinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. So you can get a streaming download on that online resource as well. So if you don't want to get a physical DVD, but you'd rather watch it on your phone or your tablet, again, please visit thedivinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. Now come back and join us next week because next week, same time, same place, 
I'm going to be talking on why would a good and loving God allow such suffering. And you talk about applicable to our times, to what's going on in the world today. We really need to understand this. Why would a good and loving God allow such suffering? Please join us live next week, Saturday at 11 o'clock, right here on Divine Mercy official Facebook page or on our website, thedivinemercy.org. God bless all of you, and let us now finish in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask the Holy Spirit to be descended down upon us, to give us peace in our world, especially in our country. We ask Mother Mary, the Queen of Peace, to wrap your mantle around all people who have been hurt by injustice or ingratitude. And we most of all ask all of us, through hope, faith, and charity, to turn back to you, our loving God, through your divine mercy to change the world. Come Holy Spirit, enkindle in their, the hearts of your faithful and shower upon them your divine love. We ask through all the angels and all the saints that may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.